The scripture reading for today comes from 1 Timothy 6, verses 6 through 10, and then verses 17 and 19. It can be found on page 6 of your bulletins. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Command those who are rich in the present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Well, Yancey said this before, but since everyone's now here, uh, wanna wish our mothers a happy Mother's Day and give you all due honor and affection and, uh, and to bless you today on this special occasion. Uh, while at the same time, want to uh, remember those of you, those of you for whom this day might be a tough day, a hard day, even a painful day. Uh, people uh, who have struggled in their relationships with their mothers or women who have lost children or who uh, have been estranged from their adult children, uh, people that long to be mothers uh, but cannot for various reasons, all kinds of varieties of stories, including a story we just heard a few minutes ago. And so for you, dear Sisters, we love you, and we extend mercy and kindness to you as well. Let's turn our attention to God's word in this passage from 1 Timothy chapter 6. But first, let's say a brief word of prayer. Let's pray together. God, we trust in you to show up. We trust in you to, to be present here through your word as you said you would. We pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts, that we would see ourselves honestly and clearly, that we would see the world around us truly, but most of all, that we would see Jesus gloriously. So change us in this time. Be present. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So what's the most outrageous thing, the most outrageous thing that you would do for $10,000? Well, that was the question posed by the Chicago radio station, WKOX, several years ago. It attracted a wide range of responses from more than 6,000 locals who were eager 
for the grand prize. The eventual winner was Jay Gwaltney of Zionsville, Indiana, who ate an 11-foot birch sapling. That's right, a tree. This Indiana State University sophomore used pruning shears, of course, to work his way down branch by branch, chewing and swallowing leaves, roots, bark, and all. His only condiment, this is a little weird, French dressing, <laughs> salad dressing, to each his own, right? This culinary feat took 18 hours of eating time across three whole days. And when it was all over, reports are that Gwaltney complained, guess what, of an upset stomach. Apparently, apparently the bark was worse than his bite. That's right, folks. You, you got your money's worth now, right? What's the most outrageous thing you might do for money? What's the most outrageous thing you have done for money? We're going to talk about money. Everyone's favorite topic, right? Today we're starting on a new sermon series, a mini-series, just for a few weeks on the topic of financial stewardship. You heard earlier that we are, as a church, finishing up our fiscal year over the next six weeks, and we are presently preparing our budget for the coming year. And so, of course, it makes sense, as a church community, to consider the topic of finances and money corporately and, indeed, biblically. But maybe more importantly... The Bible talks about our relationship to money as being a very important part of what's often called our Christian discipleship, what it means to follow Jesus in all areas of life. After all, if we're honest with ourselves, money is far from something that we tuck away into the corners of life. Just about every waking moment, just about every decision that we make, sometimes just about every thought that fills our minds, are somehow directly or indirectly related to our material possessions. Such is life, and this is exactly why so much of the Bible, in fact, addresses the topic of money. What does it mean, and what does it look like to relate to our money and to use our money in light of the good news of Jesus Christ? And so it's an important subject matter for all of us, whether if you are just getting to know who Jesus is or if you're seeking to grow in maturity, maturity as to living a life before Jesus, it's worth our time. In fact, it's an underappreciated and probably undertaught topic in modern churches today. And so we're going to address a number of questions. So what does God think about money anyway? Does God actually ask people to give him 
money? Why do churches always seem to be asking for money? What could possibly motivate somebody to give their money away to the church or to anyone for that matter, not begrudgingly, but as a cheerful giver, as the Bible instructs? What is a tithe? I've heard of this word, perhaps you're thinking. It sounds scary. How do I do it? Do I need to do it? We'll cover practical topics. We'll cover broad themes and principles. If you have specific questions, let me, let our staff know. We'd love to see if we can find ways to address them. But today, we're starting with just a few basic principles about money. It's sort of a, a beginner's theology to kick us off. A beginner's theology of money and material possessions. Of course, there's much more than the Bible that the Bible says about the topic than just this, but this will get us started. And what we find in this passage, written by the Apostle Paul to his protege Timothy, are four principles. Four principles about money. Let's take a look. And number one, the first principle is that money is good. Money is good. Money and material possessions are inherently good things. This might sound surprising to some of you, whether if you grew up in a certain church tradition that taught otherwise, or if you did not grow up in the church at all and you've heard otherwise. Person says, well, what about verse 10? Doesn't this tell us that money is evil? Well, actually, no. That verse there is actually one of the most misunderstood and misquoted verses in the entire Bible. It does not say money is the root of all evil, as it's often said, which, of course, would then mean that money is the cause of every bad thing in the world, that there's nothing worse in the world than money. But rather, what verse 10 actually says, if we read it carefully according to this careful translation, the love of money, not money itself, is a root, not the only root, of all kinds of evil, not every evil. We'll come back to this verse, but let's pause and notice that this tells us that money and material possessions have the potential to be harmful if we relate to them in harmful ways, but in and of themselves, they are good, a blessing from God. In fact, you might have noticed how in the end of verse 17, we're reminded that God richly provides us with everything for our, what? Enjoyment. In context, the everything Paul has in mind includes wealth. So your material possessions aren't a, a necessary evil only to be used to meet life's necessities, your material possessions, rather, are also a gift from God to be enjoyed. Proverbs 3, verse 9 teaches us, Honor the Lord with your wealth, 
You cannot honor God with something that is inherently sinful. Working diligently and earning money is good. Buying and selling things with money is inherently good. This is an important starting point as we study the topic of money. Because it just might begin to correct some unbiblical and misguided attitudes that we can slip into. For example, if you find yourself feeling false guilt simply for having things. Or if you find yourself looking down on certain lines of work as being inferior, especially those in the business world, banking or finance. Several years ago, I was once at a gathering of Christians here in D.C. where a young man shared that he worked for a mutual fund. And as he shared this, he dropped his head and muttered something about how it was actually the only work that he could find almost as if to apologize for it and how he it was almost shameful compared to the other good things that people in DC seem to be doing for the world he said it out loud but i think a lot of people maybe even some of you including christians think this because we fail to believe that money, according to the Bible, is good, a blessing from God. Uh, the currency by which many redeemed and wonderful things that mirror the very character and the life of God, that even extend the kingdom of God, is used by. What might change in the coming week if you began to believe this more truly? What might change in your attitudes towards money itself or towards yourself, towards your job, towards other people, uh, towards those who have much and towards those who have little? What might change? Now, before you decide to go on a shopping spree, keep listening. Money is good, but second, money is not God. Money is good, but money is not God. It's a good thing, but it is not everything. And it becomes distorted when we start treating money like an ultimate thing. Money is a gift, the Bible tells us, but money starts to distort us when we treat it as the giver of all good gifts. In other words, money can so easily become an idol in the heart. Something we start to give God-like status in our lives. Again, this is what verse 10 warns us. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Not money, but the love of money, an over-attachment to money, an unhealthy longing for money. This is the language of a spiritual addiction to material things. 
Verse 17 also compares the way we relate to money to the way we relate to God. So the Apostle Paul says the rich are not to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God. Biblically speaking, to put your hope in something is to trust in someone or something to give you future security. It's to gain confidence that you're going to be all right tomorrow. That's what it means to put your hope in something. All the ways we should put our hope in God, we are always in danger of putting our hope in money and in wealth. It almost suggests to us that there's a natural wiring in the human soul that gives us a tendency towards a near religious relationship to our resources. Have you thought about that lately? And so it's worth asking, are there ways that you've been putting your hope in money? Treating your money or material possessions like a god in your life. No? Not, not you either? Okay, well, then we're just done, you know, <laughs> right? I mean, it's almost too easy, right? Too easy to let ourselves off the hook. And no one ever, ever thinks they have a spiritual problem with money or materialism. We always feel behind. We always feel like we're not given what we're owed. We always feel like there's someone else who's got a worse condition than our own. But consider this, what are you asking your money and material possessions to purchase for you? What are you turning to to give you what God alone can actually provide? Is it perhaps security? If I save enough, then then I'll be safe. Is it your family's security? If, if I make enough to move in to that neighborhood or that side of the neighborhood, then, then my kids will finally be safe. Is it significance? If I have those things, then finally I'll be somebody. Now they'll respect me. Is it comfort? Is it love? Now she'll notice me. Now. Is it happiness? Now all my sorrows will go away. Someone says, well, I don't have a lot of money, and so this can't be a struggle of mine. But you know, verse 9 tells us, those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Notice at this point, Paul doesn't say those who are rich are the only ones who are spiritually vulnerable. He says those who want to get rich, and that can be anyone. Whether if you are today struggling in poverty, if you identify yourself as middle class, or if you are affluent, every one of us 
every one of us is vulnerable to making an idol out of our material possessions. You don't have to have it too much. You just need to want it too much. Maybe you're starting to see this at work in your life. Maybe you will after today. Maybe you've begun to fall into what Paul here calls the trap. Maybe you're starting to see the the, the foolishness and harmfulness in your heart. Then this, if that's you, then this may be the beginning of freedom for you. Freedom from what the apostle is describing, as we mentioned before, as an addiction, an addictiveness of idolatry. It's the beginning then today, perhaps the beginning of freedom from slavery. Jesus beginning to save you from relational ruin or even spiritual destruction. Dear friends, don't you know, money is good, but money is not God. Here's the third principle. Here we go. Money matters are spiritual matters. Money matters are spiritual matters. Of course, we've already started touching on this idea. How we relate to material things reveal a lot about the health of our souls. There is, friends, a spirituality to your and my finances. Now, immediately, it's important that we don't hear over-spiritualize money matters, or that we don't describe it as spiritual in the wrong way. What I mean by that is that the Bible never treats the lack of money like an illusion. Financial hardship in our fallen world is a real hardship. The Bible never says, just quit your whining. You have enough. Not in that way, not with that tone. God shows enormous compassion for those who are worried about making ends meet. And for those who are struggling in poverty. Behold the compassionate heart of God. One of the reasons for this is our financial condition has real impact on our souls. The Bible recognizes the spiritual struggles that can result from a lack of money. A lack of money can result in spiritual, not just financial, struggles. It also recognizes that spiritual struggles can often result from an overabundance of money as well. So one great example of this comes from Proverbs chapter 30, verses 7 through 9. Here's what it says. It's a great passage. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have... Where are we? (laughs) Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. 
you see the connection between the material and the spiritual here. Poverty is incredibly rough day to day. Some of you know that all too well. Mercy to you today. But what does this passage suggest but this, that one of the worst things about poverty is the temptation to make choices that dishonor the name of God. Have you thought of your financial struggles in light of your relationship to God? But did you also hear what the proverb says about the spiritual danger of riches? I may have too much and disown you, God, and say, who is the Lord? Beloved, money can easily make us forget God. Here's something that we need to pay attention to. Those with money may be financially durable. The Bible says they are spiritually vulnerable. Here's how Paul makes the point in verse 17 again. Commend those, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant. That doesn't mean that wealthy people are, are somehow just naturally more prideful. It's saying money makes you start to feel strong. Uh, makes you start to feel self-sufficient. Uh, money has a way of numbing us to our need for God. Because of my half-decent station in life, most people in life might find me respectable. Well, then why wouldn't God also not find me respectable and acceptable? I can buy my way out of most troubles in life, a bitter winter storm, a temporary loss of housing, so why wouldn't I be able to buy my way out of trouble with God because of my sin? And this is why in Revelation 3, we have a recording of Jesus writing a letter and rebuking this church in Laodicea in Asian Minor, a, a, a talented and a wealthy church. Here's what he says. You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, spiritually poor, blind, and naked. This is also why Jesus called the poor blessed. You're confronted with your needs on a regular basis. So in a sense, your soul is almost trained to see your need for God's help. It's not so strange for you. It's not so hard for you imagining needing God. See, some of us are broke spiritually but because we're middle class materially, we think we're doing just fine. Money matters are spiritual matters. How we spend our money and how we relate to money tells us a lot about how we relate to God. Whether in the language of verse 17, you're putting your hope in God or in something else. 
We'll put it another way. Money is a barometer of your spiritual health. It tells you a little bit about the place that God has in your life or the security that you find in God or whether you've actually experienced the grace and the generosity of God which makes you gracious and generous yourself. It's why in Matthew 6, Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And it's why when a poor widow donated a few cents to the temple treasury, Jesus exclaimed with joy, there's no one in all of Israel that's given as much as she had because she gave from her heart and Jesus saw her heart through her gift. So what's your spiritual barometer reading based upon your relationship and use of your material possessions? Friends, it really is today worth considering that for some of us, for some of us, our spiritual growth might actually be stunted because we're in bondage to money or what money can buy. That you may be looking in all sorts of places for the next way in which God might have you grow spiritually, whether to know him or to grow in your knowledge of him. And dancing from book to book you might, and from Bible study to Bible study, seeking all manner of ways in which you might want to grow or seek to grow, when all the while the main blockage and bondage in your life might be here in this area of financial stewardship or to put it more positively that could it be that for some of you and again maybe very soon growing in the spirituality of financial stewardship might be the key to unleashing a fresh wave of spiritual vitality in your soul would you dare to believe that that might be true if we believe that money matters are spiritual matters. Money is good. Money isn't God. Money matters are spiritual matters. And fourthly and lastly, money offers the power to bless and to serve. We read in verse 18, command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. There's a lot packed in there, but here's one thing that Paul is clearly saying. If you've got riches, spend your riches with good deeds of sharing and generosity. He's saying your material possessions, your couch, your TV, your food, the decorative items on your walls, your bank account, are to be seen as instruments of blessing, service, and love. 
for the good of your neighbor and for the worship of God. Listen, money is described in the Bible almost as a spiritual gift, a, a, a unique ability that can be used for the benefit of other people. We're invited to see ourselves as stewards of God's material blessings, whether if we have a little or if we have a lot. And we're called to live lives of sacrificial generosity, not as a burden, but as part of what Paul describes as taking hold of the life that is truly life. It's worth pondering, friends. Do you know that just like other talents and other abilities that you've been given by God, that even your material blessings were given to you so that you can be a blessing to others. Do you view your stuff in this way? Talk about this some more over the next two weeks, of course, as we unpack the nature and the dynamics of giving. But of course, it stands out that this is so different from the way that we normally view our money, isn't it? I mean, how, how do you get the ability to, to do this, to change your mind and even to have a transformed attitude in your relationship to your possessions? Well, look at what verses 6 and 7 in the passage says, but godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. And again, there's much that could be said about this, but let me leave you simply with this, that you can't live generously if you're always maxing out your budget on yourself. Generosity requires a measure of simplicity. But simplicity requires contentment, being satisfied with what you have so you're not always reaching for something more. But contentment, well, that's easier said than done. Where do you get that inner satisfaction? Where do you get contentment? And the answer we've already touched on, it's putting your hope in God. It's finding your future security, your confidence, your identity in the one who came because of love out of eternal generosity, who made himself a material possession, the Son of God taking on human flesh, giving himself in body and soul for us, who laid down his life throughout his life and then gave up his life even unto death on a cross, paying the price for our sin, including our idolatry of money, and our forgetting of God, that we might be forgiven more than forgiven, that we might be given life that is truly life. But you see, he does this all by grace as a gift, not asking you to pay him back, but to simply open wide your arms and to receive it with gratitude, with love, with hope. We tend to turn to money to give us status and significance. Don't you know, if you're in Christ, what's your status? You're a child of the King. 
What's your significance? You are perfectly righteous in God's sight, and he esteems you with glory. And if you're in Christ, no matter what your station in life is here in this world, you are seated with him at the right hand of the Father, a seat at the table, a crown on your head. We turn to money, as we've said before, to give us happiness. If you're in Christ, don't you know you are promised the eternal joy of heaven? We turn to money to give us security. If you're in Christ, no one can rob you of your true identity. As 1 Peter 1 tells us, you've been given a spiritual inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Hallelujah. We turn to money to buy us love, but oh, dear friends, see how great is the lavish love of God in Christ. See his untold sacrificial generosity for you and me. See the storehouse of his grace that never runs out, that will meet your every need, that will change you into the perfect likeness of Christ, that introduces you into a life of purpose and wholeness and glory. One day fully when he returns, but even now by a taste as we're given his Holy Spirit. Dear friends, this is what the Bible describes as true wealth. Not having stuff, but having God. As Hebrews 13, 5 tells us with a similar logic, Keep your lives free from the love of money, a similar phrase there. Keep your lives free from the addiction to money. Keep your lives free from an overattachment to money and be content with what you have, that you might give what you have, that you might serve others with what you have. Because why? Because God has said, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. This is true wealth not having stuff, but having God. And when we put our hope in God, it begins to loosen our grip on the things we formerly felt we must have. Loosens our love of money that we might be generous with our money. Seeing money not as an inherent evil, but a good not as God, but a blessing. Something that is for not only our own enjoyment, but also something that offers the power to bless and serve a neighbor, even unto not only their temporal good, but their eternal good. You want to invest like that. Here's an invitation to reconsider. Maybe everything that you've learned in life about the nature and the value, and the struggles of money. You've got a couple weeks to work through this. Here are just a couple basic principles. God, give us grace to grow in our relationship, in our use, in our handling of our material blessings. Let's pray. Dear God, please come.
every heart and every mind. Give us something to ponder, an area of our life that needs to change, adjust. We offer ourselves to you. Change us for your glory. Take a hold of that which you desire to bring to our attention. We offer ourselves to you. We surrender ourselves to you. Have your way with us. We say this for our good, for our neighbor's good, and for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together. Let's sing.